These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Let's give them our full attention today. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, and then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Amen. Those goes to read of God's word. May he continue to bless it for us. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Friends, please be seated. So apparently one of the must-do must things in Fremont is to visit Coyote Hills. Um, at least according to Yelp. It's got like 4.5 stars on Yelp. And so I thought, okay, I got to visit this monument. And so we enter, and parking's like seven bucks, so I don't want to park. And so we have to walk with the kids for like a good mile into the entrance. And the whole time as I'm walking there, uh, Millie says, oh, can you hold me? And I was like, what's wrong with your legs? And she says, I'm just tired, hold me. So here I am carrying my child and my other child just you know, saying how long, how much farther, and we finally get into Coyote Hills, this 4.5-star monument of Fremont. And I got to say, it's a really lovely swamp, you know? It, it, it just wasn't exactly what I was hoping for. And there's nothing wrong with it. I, I just expected so much more based on the Yelp reviews and how beautiful people said it was. But it wasn't what I expected. You ever have that? You ever have these expectations that didn't really turn out the way that you hoped? We all have that. See, there's this grand narrative of the kingdom of God, how he rules over everything and how God's promising to restore things and he's starting now with the entrance of Jesus into humanity. He's doing all that, saving and restoring the world to give birth to the new heavens and new earth. Such great expectations. But then there's life here. There's bills to pay. There's plumbing issues that we have. Diapers to change. Tantrums to manage. The colonoscopies that we have to go to. The Bible says God's kingdom reigns. But how do we manifest such a spiritual truth into the griminess that we call reality because that's the struggle for everyone the kingdom of god is here but then there's reality 
Jesus sheds some light to this. And he provokes this question of verse 21. Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not understand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to life. The point is just simple. You don't use a toilet seat to use as your desk, nor do you put on hemorrhoid cream to fix your cavity, because that's not the purpose of why those things exist. Just as light's purpose is not meant to be kept in the dark, it's meant to shine, to make everyone see. And the thing about lamps is that it's symbolic of God's presence, especially during the wilderness wanderings for the Israelites as they would shape this lamp into the, into the shape of a tree with six branches or seven branches total to symbolize the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And on this particular lampstand, they would light it up within the myth, within the tabernacle as a way to remind God's people his ever glowing presence in the life of Israel. Whether they're in the Israel, whether they're in the wilderness or not, that lamp being lit was a reminder God is truly with his people. And this language in verse 21 says that the lamp was brought. But the literal words in Greek is actually the lamp comes. It's anthropomorphic language, human attributes being tied to an inanimate object. And it reminds me of Lumiere from um, The Lamp from Beauty and the Beast, how he invites Belle to be my guest and be my guest. That's all I know about the song, but be my guest. And I'm certain that Jesus never watched Beauty and the Beast because he's holy and anti-corporate greed. But the lamp is the incarnate word of Christ, an invitation not to just be guests, but to truly be known by God, to be truly known by God. What a frightening feeling for someone to truly know you. That's frightening to know everything about you, especially your flaws. Because if, one, if there's one thing we've been so good and uh, conditioned to do is to create the most curated, best version of ourselves, I realized this this past week. My wife, she's an amazing helper, and she helps me with everything from church, from clothing to like how I eat and diet. My, my wife is an amazing helper. And on this particular week, she uh, was just suggesting to me on the calendar what kind of events we can do for church, and she was telling me what, maybe what things that we could think about to help gather around the community. And as she was saying these things, she realized I got really quiet and my, my lips just puckered up. And, and she realizes the tension and the energy, and she wonders what's wrong. And she says, well, how come, how come you're being defensive right now? Like I stonewalled, and she picked up on the energy, and she asked, why are you being so defensive right now? I said, I'm not being defensive. You're defensive. And I realized in that moment, it was just my insecurities being exposed. That I don't have it figured out. And my wife lovingly reminds me, I'm, I, I'm here to help you. I'm here to do this with you. I was reminded of this. It's fearful when someone really knows you. Really knows what's wrong with you really knows the things that really irk you, the things that you really can't cover up. 
God is not exposing us to condemn us. He's exposing us to recreate us. Abe Lincoln said it best when he said, we, we were born as God's originals, but we die as man's copy. That's truth right there. That's why he's called Honest Abe. God shines light on our sin because it's a reminder. That's not who you are. The sin is not who you are. Here is my grace. Turn away, repent, and become what I've actually created you for. Guys, track me on this logic here, this following logic. See, at the core of sin, there is a question of worth, worthiness. And if I am such a worthless person, and I do worthless things because I am worthless, sin, it spirals down this road. Yet if we are so worthless, why is Satan so intent on tempting you to bring us to his side? Why would Satan tempt you to bring him to your side if you are absolutely worthless? Either he knows the truth of who you truly are because he sees what God sees, incredible value in his image bearers. We're not worthless. We're created in God's image. And the light of God's word, it exposes our sin for the purpose to restore us to be God's original. He is recreating us. But here's how all this works out. Verse 24. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. See, the measure that Jesus is referring to is how much of God's word you take in for yourself and how much of it does it take root in your life. That's the measure he's talking about. How much does God's word take root in your life? Because I'll tell you one thing. You cannot grow with one foot in and one foot out. To be half-hearted is to be stunted. Half-hearted means to be stunted in your growth. Name one good thing that has come out of you being half-hearted in something. Name one good thing. Just think about it. You ever try to do your, your personal best uh, a bench press or squat, and what if you go half-hearted on that? What do you think happens? You get smushed. You ever, you ever uh, love someone half-heartedly? It doesn't work out. You got to go all in. There's all this talk about splitting the check for, for a meal, whatever. No, you got to go all in. You pay all of that. Nothing good comes out of being half-hearted. Nothing good. Jesus is getting at here is when you fully immerse yourself in God, he allows you to fully engage with everything else in your life. God is recreating us. The light of his presence exposes us, but it's also what gives us growth. And this growth, it, it takes time. It just does. It takes time. Jesus describes it this way in the second parable here. He says this in verse 26. The kingdom of God is as, as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises at night, night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. And this is a gardening nightmare for all type A personalities 
Because if you want to know, if you're a type A personality, you want to know what type of soil am I supposed to use? How much water should I actually pour in? What's the right temperature for these plants? What kind of results can I expect? What's the timeline for all these things? And if the kingdom of God is about how God rules over everything and he's going to create this master plan of restoring all of the earth, you'd expect a more elaborate to detail type of planning, more of a strategy at work here. You don't expect scattering seeds. That seems, that seems, you know, like a lack of thought here. How will we know that God is at work? And the parable tells you, just go to sleep and God will work. We know not how. I feel like this is God's way of saying, stop being controlling. Stop trying to control things. We might not be able to see or tell what what and how God grows, or maybe the timing that he has in mind. We want God so desperately to make us strong and less anxious, but maybe what he's truly working on in our hearts is humility. We look at the world. We say, it's not a fair world. you got to fix things. Perhaps God is growing our sense of kindness to the world. We don't know. We don't get to control what exactly God's growing. And then there's verse 29 here. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts the sickle, because the harvest has come. So you may not know what God is growing, but when it's grown, you'll know. When it grows, you'll know. We can't control how God grows or what he grows but he's at work. You guys ever garden? My, my, my wife has a green heart, and she likes to plant in the backyard with our kids. And so, you know, the kids are excited. They put on their gardening gloves, and they mix the soil, and they're very intricate about how they, you know, put in like a centimeter deep and put the seeds in. And it, it takes a lot of time, it looks like, and they're playing in the dirt, and then they finally plant the seeds into the backyard space or the, the garden bed that's there. But we also share this backyard space with squirrels that like to dig up the seeds and eat the seeds right away, right in front of our faces with their smug little cheeks. And then finally, a few plants sprout. And like, it's like literally a centimeter, but we're like so overjoyed that this tiny little thing sprouted and we're so happy but the first of every week, the gardeners come over and they're using their wind blowers, so with that wind blowing machine, and they, they blow away all the seeds. And it's so discouraging to see that. They're creating all these tornadoes and they don't realize that life is forming there. No regard for life. And that's the thing. Growth is so slow. It's such a gradual process. But disasters, they, they happen overnight. Disasters happen overnight. And this is where everyone can get hung up on, the disasters in our lives. When they happen, I think two things can happen to us. When the disasters ha happen, two things can happen to us. We can get super salty and bitter and cynical. We can turn into my favorite donkey, the Eeyore. You know this donkey? 
He's the most pessimistic, cynical donkey alive in Disney. And he says things like, it's a good morning, which I doubt. Or he says things like, wish I could say yes, but I can't. That's one way to respond to the disasters. You become a dream killer, but you say you're a realist. Or, on the other hand, you can turn into something like, I saw this movie, it's super cheesy, but Lego Man, it's for my kids. And the theme song is, everything is awesome. Everything that bad happens, he just says, it's awesome. He just puts on a smile. He ignores all the bad things that happens because why? Everything is awesome. It's the most annoying soundtrack I've ever heard. But those are your two options. You can be Eeyore or you can be Lego Man. Which will you choose? We need people to dream so that we can imagine a world where God truly is in work, in the work of all this. Yet at the same time, we do need the realist to set healthy boundaries. And yet we don't want to go over each ray, uh, one towards the other. So what's, what's the solution? What's the solution to the disasters in our lives and the discouragements? You compost it. Look at what verse 28 says. It says, the earth produces by itself. The earth produces by itself. What makes the soil rich and deep is the fact that there is death and decay. And the death and decay, when you compost it together, it makes more plants and trees to grow out of the richness of that soil. That's what all disasters and disappointments are. They enrich the soil of our souls. Listen, at New Life Fremont, I get that there's been discouragements. I, I don't ignore that. I feel it. There's been discouragements. I get that when you decide to plant a church, it was mixed feelings. Because on the one hand, it's positive. How can you, how can you put something negative on a church plant? It's God's work but also had negative impacts on some of us, on a lot of us. Took away momentum. It's okay to feel both. The execution timing was less than ideal, maybe. I get that when the founding pastor of New Life stepped down on his own volition, it's discouraging, no matter how amicable it is. And then for our dear beloved Kevin Timmons to step down, people left the church. And now that I show up, I don't know if I'm an encouragement or not, but I'm here. I'm here. But I'm also here to say it's okay to be discouraged by these things. Everything is not awesome sometimes. I don't bring up these things to make us feel depressed or relive lowercase t trauma. But for us to accept what happened and call it for what it is, it's okay to be discouraged. Everything's not awesome. But accepting what happens doesn't mean you settle as if nothing will get better, like an Eeyore. Instead, we need to learn to how to compost, to mix in our history, accept for what it was, and to look forward from that. What we need out of all the disasters that you can have in your life 
is what I call gritty hope. A gritty hope. And it comes in the shape of a mustard seed. Which is my last point here. See, China's got the largest army. Russia's got the most nuclear weapons. America's got the best of technology. What shall we compare the kingdom of God to? A grain of mustard seed. A seed by its very nature is small to begin with. It's ironic that Jesus uses the mustard seed. He doesn't even use an avocado pit. You know, that would be a monstrous seed, but he doesn't do that. He even emphasizes it's the smallest of all seeds. And if you know anything about a plant, uh, this plant in particular, the mustard seed plant, it doesn't have branches. It's actually not even a tree. It's more like a shrub or like an invasive weed. Like no one has ever gotten excited to plant tumbleweeds in their gardens. No one has ever been excited about that. And this mustard seed is something you can barely see and something that you weren't even looking for in the first place. And yet that's what Jesus says my kingdom is like, something you can't even see. And yet Jesus says in verse 32, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Either Jesus needs a class in horticulture, or there is something else he has in mind. He's thinking about the prophet Ezekiel, where in chapter 17, Ezekiel makes his own parable, where Israel placed their trust in Egypt, uh, Egypt to protect them rather than to trust in God. And as a result, Ezekiel prophesied that Babylon, another foreign army, will bring Israel into exile. And yet, even in those most dire circumstances, Ezekiel promises that God would still preserve their Davidic kingdom. And he compares this Davidic kingdom to a cedar tree. And this this prophecy in Ezekiel 17, he says, I'm going to take a twig from that cedar. I'm going to plant it on my holy mountain, and it will grow into a noble cedar, giving homes for all the birds. Jesus is saying, I am the greater Davidic kingdom. I am the greater Davidic kingdom who brings us out of the greater exile of sin and death into the new heavens and the new earth. Guys, for every tear that you shed, the anxieties that you have to manage, the fears that you have to constantly run away from, the depression that lingers over us, and the anger that things just shouldn't be this way, Are they not all indicators that our hearts long for a world beyond the one that we can just see? Do we not long for a world beyond the one that we could see for ourselves? The writer Amy Caldwell put it this way, that all recurring joy is pain refined. All recurring joy is pain refined. Is this not what hope does? that all it takes is a little mustard seed of faith to know that God is actually faithful. You know, like some of you, I I raised a a pandemic baby, and for a whole year, my daughter was stuck at home. She didn't get to celebrate her first birthday. All she knew were four walls and a dusty backyard. After like half a year of being sheltered in place, 
we just decided to go somewhere because we were going stir crazy. So we found a nice random spot, secluded, no one knows about it, a secret spot. And it's full of eucalyptus trees. And as the kids got out, of, as we opened the door, the kids just ran out like little Labradors, just running to these trees. And Millie starts just babbling to these trees, and she starts rolling in the tree barks, and she's hugging these eucalyptus trees. And we're like, we're like this is so strange. What is she doing? And I realized she's never seen trees before. This is her first time, I realize. And as I, as I was seeing this joy in her face, and I realized in this moment it was both sad and joyful at the same time because of how much the pandemic has taken away. But it was also refined pain for what we can hope for, that this kid's going to be all right. God is hopeful for us because only because of the one who was actually left hopeless. Because there's a different tree with branches in the shape of a cross. And upon that specific tree, Jesus didn't have the light of God's presence, but was left to endure an eternal darkness for the sins that truly leave the world hopeless. He was plucked out like a weed out of the favor of his own father, also that he can firmly plant you and root you into the love of God in Christ. That out of the soil of death, Jesus sprouts to new life. And guess what? No one saw it coming. No one saw this coming. But no less real. He's making all things new. Guys, you know what our church name is? It's New Life Fremont. New Life Fremont. It's not Despairing Life Fremont. It's not that. New Life Fremont. Because we believe in a God who gives new hope. A God who gives new life. A God who promises new mercies every morning. May you be people, a people, with such gritty hope that you're planting this everywhere you go. That's how we can have the grittiness of our hope. Friends, don't forget, don't forget this hope we have in Christ. Can I pray for us? Let's do this. Let's just take a second. What's the disaster in your life? What is it? Like, is it the deal that you couldn't end up closing? Does it have to do with your finances? Does it have to do with some level of success that you're holding on to? I don't, I don't know what it is. What's your disaster? Take this time to lift it up to God. We're going to compost this together. Lord, I'm discouraged by these things. I don't know what to do with it. I have microaggressions because of it, but it's there nonetheless. And as you pray those things, know that the Lord can compost it to bring out something enriching in your lives. But you got to acknowledge it first. Just take a minute.
Lord, as we lay down the disasters in our lives, oh, how little we think of your resurrection. And yet here we are. You're not asking us to be saviors of our own lives. You're asking us to acknowledge there is a savior for our lives. And as we bring up little mustard seeds of faith, we hold it up to you because you're able to even use death to proclaim your awesomeness and your glory and your goodness. God, out of the soil of our own lives and hearts, we lift up all our discouragements. We lift up our tendencies to be absolutely bitter and resentful, but at the same time, we lift up our tendencies to compartmentalize, to just brush things under the rug. But the light of your grace will do no such thing. And so here we are, all of us, Teach us what it means to have faith, gritty faith, because of what our Savior has done for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.